because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation. And we're going to read verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Revelation 1, 4 through 7. Though the majority of our, the basis of our sermon is going to be from Revelation 1, verse 5. But open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 4 through 7 here for our scripture reading. Hear then the word of the living God. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now with our Bibles open before us, with our hearts ready to hear your word, with our ears open. Father, we pray that you would show us the glory of Jesus. We pray that you would deliver us from the evil one who seeks to blind our hearts and our minds and our eyes from seeing the light of the glory of God, your glory, in the face of your son, Jesus the Messiah. Lord, open our eyes. Let light shine out of darkness into our hearts. For those who are not Christian, that you would convert them. And for those who are, that we would see Christ's resurrected glory and be moved to worship. Lord, we need you. We need you here in this room here in Southeast LA. We need you where our members and friends are watching, wherever they're watching. So help us now to understand your word from Revelation 1.5. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we want to talk about what the resurrection means. But before we talk about what the resurrection means, let's just briefly go over the story of Jesus. Because what we're talking when we're talking about the meaning of the resurrection, first we need to know the story of the resurrection. And I'm only going to say it ever so briefly this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can keep your finger in Revelation. But if you could turn to Acts chapter 10, 36 to 43, Acts 10, 36 to 43, or you can just listen. Um, this is Peter summarizing the whole story of Jesus's life, death and resurrection in, in, a few, in a few sentences. This is maybe the gospel of Mark summarized in less than 10 verses, okay? So hear the story of Jesus from Acts 10, 36 to 43. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. This is Peter talking to Cornelius and his family and friends. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God has appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him through his name, that through his name, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, receives the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel. I just read to you the gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who is not only Jesus of Nazareth, he is Lord of all. He rose from the dead, 
and he is Lord of all, and he is preached to all people. So if you are not a Christian and you are listening, thank you for listening. There is no more important message that you could hear than the message of Jesus Christ. And the message of Jesus Christ is that he's God's son who came into the world. He lived the life we should have lived, and he died on the cross for sinners. He died on the cross for sinners, taking the judgment of God on himself, and then he rose from the dead on the third day. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus physically died. He physically rose from the dead. Never to die again with a glorified, indestructible, and immortal body. Now, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Christ's life, death, and resurrection. But for you to make sense of that, if you're not a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, to make sense of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you need to understand a few things. You need to understand that you are a sinner. And because you're a sinner, um, you're a sinner because God made you and God created you to know him and enjoy him. But we haven't enjoyed God for who he is. And because we have rejected God and rebelled against God and have decided that we don't want God, we want to use God for our other gods. But the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the one in whose image we are made, we don't want him. We want the stuff of this world. We want health, we want life, we want friendship, we want money, we want power, we want influence, we want good food, we want health, we want safety, we want fun. And we don't want God. We just want God to give us those things. And that is rebellion and that is sin. And the Bible says that the penalty or the wages of sin is death, eternal death, in hell, under God's wrath forever. And this is why the gospel makes sense because God sent his son instead. Here's the good news that God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead so that it says here in Acts 10 that now Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. So if you believe in Jesus right now where you're sitting, where you're watching, if you would believe in Jesus, that he is God's son who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you would repent from your sins and your own righteousness and instead trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus and entrust yourself to Jesus, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven of your sins. God will give you his Holy Spirit to live in you and to begin to transform you for the rest of your life here on earth into eternity. That is the good news, that God will have a relationship with you and God will save you if you're seven years old or four years old or 40 years old. God can save you now. You don't have to wait till you're older. Trust in Jesus and repent from your sins and you'll be saved. Now we believe as Christians that Jesus rose from the dead. The Old Testament predicted it. Jesus predicted it. The apostles saw it. Others witnessed it as well. And then the apostles and others testified to the news that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And it really does mean that he is Lord. Now, here's the problem for us Christians and non-Christians in 2020. Our problem is that it is easy, just like in the first century, it is easy for us to misunderstand the resurrection. It's easy for us to misunderstand it. It's even easier for us as Christians to underestimate it. We all can grow in our understanding. Everyone estim underestimates the resurrection. We don't give God the glory. We don't rejoice over it as we ought to, but we can grow in it. And I want us to grow in it even this morning. What if the resurrection is not that important to you? What if that's how you feel? Like the resurrection, you know, the resurrection's not that important to me. My heart is cold to it. Really, what's really important to me is social distancing and my health and safety. Or what's really important to me is my friends and family or, or my financial stability. That's what's really important to me. Not that some Jewish man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And yet, as a Christian, what if, what if our hearts are just cold to the resurrection? Or even worse, for us as Christians, what if our outlook on life is hopelessness, even though we know that Jesus rose from the dead? What if we are living with hopelessness, a functional hopelessness? There's a lot of hopelessness going around in the world today and even among Christians. We're isolated from each other. We can't encourage each other. We can't gospelize each other to instill hope in each other. And so in these things, there could be hopelessness. Well, you don't have to live in ignorance of what the resurrection means. You don't have to live in indifference or even hopelessness, whether you're a self-professing Christian 
or you're self-consciously not a Christian. Here's the main goal I want us to understand this morning, okay? Here's the main goal. Meditate on what Jesus's resurrection means according to Revelation so that you live with God's hope. Let's meditate from Revelation 1, verse 5. Let's meditate on what Christ's resurrection means so that we live with God's hope. So that we live with God's hope. All right. Let's look at Revelation 1, verse 5. So here's grace to you and peace. And then verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we have four things that Christ's resurrection means from Revelation 1. And I'll point to three of them right now. I'll give you the fourth one in a second, or at towards the end. Uh, and it's shorter. But look at, look at verse 5. He's the firstborn from the dead. So this is talking about Christ who's risen already. This is after his death and resurrection. And what is he called because he rose from the dead? He is called the faithful witness. That's point one. He's called the firstborn from the dead. That's point three. Sorry about that. And then he's also called the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's point two. Okay, point two. So here are three things that, that Christ's resurrection means at least. That he's the faithful witness, that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, or he's the king of kings, and that he is the firstborn from the dead. We'll take it in that order, okay? And then we'll, we'll go to a fourth one here, Revelation 1, before we're done. So let's think about these four things. First of all, the resurrected Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. He bears the faithful testimony as the faithful prophet, if you like. He, he's witnessing here. He's the faithful witness. Now, it says here, the faithful witness, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the firstborn from the dead. This is alluding to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, we, we're going through the Psalms on Sundays. Psalm 89 is the end of book three of the Psalter. And in Psalm 89, it ends with this great Davidic Psalm about the Davidic king who's going to be exalted on high. That the Davidic promises are supposed to be fulfilled, and yet God has rejected the Davidic king as they're in exile. And so they're mourning and saying, what happened to the Davidic household? But Psalm 89, look at or listen to verses 27 and 37. You can look at this later, but listen to it. I want you to hear Revelation 1.5 as I read Psalm 89, 27 and 37. I will also make my firstborn son the greatest of the kings of the earth. There it is. I'll make my firstborn, I'm sorry, not firstborn son. I will also make my firstborn the greatest of the kings of the earth. So you have firstborn here, right? You guys hear firstborn? And then the greatest of the kings of the earth. If he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, here he's the greatest of the kings of the earth, Psalm 89, 27. And then in verse 37, like the moon established forever, a faithful witness in the sky. He's going to make the Davidic king a faithful witness. Like the moon is a faithful witness in the sky, the Davidic king will be a faithful witness to God. Can you guys hear Revelation 1, 5 there in Psalm 89? Now, Psalm 89 is speaking about the Davidic king. But there's also another allusion here from the Old Testament. And let us let me just quote it to you. You could listen to it. Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12. Here's what it says. Here's God talking about they're, in, they're going to exile. He's going to redeem them from exile. But he's promising it here. And listen to the promise here in Isaiah 43, verse 10 through 12. You are my witnesses, Israel. This is Yahweh's declaration. And my servant whom I have chosen... So you're my witnesses, and my servant whom I've chosen is my witness. So that, what were they witnessing to? So that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. I, I am Yahweh. Besides me, there is no Savior. I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. This is is Yahweh's declaration, and I am God, end quote. Here you have three witnesses. Israel is going to be the witnesses. The servant, the, the servant of Yahweh is going to be a witness. And then God himself, Yahweh, is a witness that he is God. There is none other that, that he is the trustworthy one. And if you go to verses 18 and 19, he's talking about how he's going to do something new. Just like the old Exodus redemption, you take the Passover Every year to remember that Christ, I mean that Christ, that, that God passed over the houses of Israel and killed the Egyptians with the angel of death. And that's what they remembered every year, year after year. And now God is saying, you're going to be my witnesses to something new, a new Exodus redemption. 
And that's what Jesus is testifying, going back to Revelation 1.5. When Jesus says, I am the faithful witness, what he's saying is Jesus is testifying here to his own testimony. What is Jesus testifying? That he has risen from the dead and that he's the living one. It says here, the firstborn from the dead. This is Jesus um, testifying to John. Look at Jesus' actual quote in chapter 1, verse 17. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am what? Alive how long? Forever and ever. This is Jesus' testimony. Here's what he's witnessing to, that I am the risen one. I am the resurrected, glorified one. So he testifies of his own resurrection as the living one, the first and the last, the beginning of the new creation, fulfilling the Isaiahic prophecies. Isaiah prophesied that there would be a new Exodus redemption in Isaiah 43. In Isaiah 65, God says through Isaiah, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus is saying, in my resurrection, I am the faithful witness. I testify to my resurrection. I testify to that new redemption that I am going to do. I testify to the new creation that I am going to fulfill. So Jesus is the faithful witness. That is his testimony. But you know what? Jesus is not the only one who has a testimony. The resurrected Jesus is not the only one who has a testimony. All those who believe in him have a testimony. Now go to Revelation. Look down at your Bible. I'm going to read a bunch of verses from Revelation, and I want you to follow along and flip with me in your Bible. Look at Revelation 1-2. This is speaking of John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John testified to the testimony of who? Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation 1-9. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are on Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. I'm there suffering because of what? Because of what? Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. We've got like five more of these. Chapter 6, verse 9. So John has holds to the testimony of Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, verse 9, when, I, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. People were getting killed for the testimony. Christians were getting killed for the testimony. Go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 7. Here's the two witnesses, and I think this symbolizes the church. Chapter 11, verse 7. When they finished their testimony, the two witnesses symbolizing the church, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. So they're killed for the testimony. Look at chapter 12, verse 11. They conquered the dragon. The, the saints conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Look at 12, 17. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And who are her offspring? Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. They testify. They're witnesses. Jesus has a testimony. He witnesses. They take it and they hold it and they conquer the dragon through it. And the dragon and the beast wage war on these people who hold to the testimony about Jesus. Look at chapter 19, verse 10. Chapter 19, verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, John says. But he said to me, the angel says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Don't worship me. I'm an angel. Worship God. I'm just like one of the servants. All Who are the servants? The brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony about Jesus. Chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. Christians have a testimony. Jesus has a testimony. He's the faithful witness. Christians believe that testimony. It's faithful to us and we hold to that testimony even if that means people kill us. If the dragon attacks us, if the beasts attack us, if we get slain in the streets, we hold to the testimony that Jesus is alive, that he is the faithful witness, that he is true. And so we hold to this testimony of the faithful witness, the one who rose from the dead, Jesus, the Messiah. And so what is our call? What's the application here from this first section? Go to chapter three, back to Revelation chapter three, verse eight. Revelation 3.8, it says, 
I know your works. Look, I have placed an open door before you that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So they're holding to the testimony. So Jesus sees that, but here's the command of verse 11. I am coming soon, and here's the command. What's the command? Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Hold on to Christ's word. Hold on to Christ's name. Hold on to the testimony of Jesus, that he is the risen, resurrected Lord of all. Christian, hold on to that testimony. You need to personally hold on to Jesus and the testimony. I just confessed the Apostles' Creed or read it to you. We need to confess Christ faithfully as a church in our confession of faith. We confess things like the Apostles' Creed, that Christ rose from the dead. But church family, Bethany Baptist Church, expect the other members and expect us as a church to sustain the doctrine of the church. That's in our church covenant. Sustain the testimony that BBC has about Jesus. Here's what we confess about Jesus in our confession of faith. What does BBC believe about Jesus Christ? Here, I'll read our confession of faith. Jesus, the mediator. mediator. Since Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, is truly God and truly man, he is the divinely appointed mediator between God and man. Having taken upon himself human nature, yet without sin, he perfectly fulfilled the law, suffered, and died upon the cross for the salvation of sinners. He was buried, rose again the third day, and ascended to his father, at whose right hand he ever lives to make intercession for his people. He will return again visibly and bodily to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive mission. He is the only mediator, the prophet, priest, and king of the church and sovereign of the universe. He now dwells in his church as the living and ever-present Lord. Amen? Praise God. That's what we believe as a church. That's what we confess as a church. And Bethany Baptist Church, we must hold to this confession and continue to confess this, even as we strengthen our faith in it. If you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe what Jesus has said about himself in the Bible? Or do you believe what someone else has said? Will you trust your own alternative conclusion about who Jesus is rather than Jesus' own testimony? He is the faithful witness. And I would submit to you that anyone who contradicts Christ's testimony is an unfaithful witness. Any rogue thought that bounces in around in your head about who you think Jesus is, is a unfaithful thought. It's untrue. I would plead with you to trust in Jesus. You could message me or talk to other Christians from our church, leave a message in the comment section, and uh, we would love to tell you more about Jesus. Children, listen up, children. Don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead just because your parents say it. Your parents are not the faithful witness at the end of the day. Who's the faithful witness? Jesus is the faithful witness. Don't believe in the resurrection of, the, of Jesus from the dead because your parents say it. Don't ultimately believe because of that. Believe it because Jesus Christ says it. He is the faithful witness. If you're a Christian who's doubting your Christianity, doubting that Jesus is true, read your Bible. Listen to Jesus speak from the scriptures. His sheep hear him and know his voice. And read your Bible. Don't just think about Jesus. Don't just pray about Jesus. Read your Bible. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Don't just listen to your own feelings and inner voice about Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Bible. Read your Bible. And let Christ feed your faith and kill your doubt. If you're feeling weak spiritually, read your Bible and hear Jesus' testimony. Ask other members even to gospelize you. So here's the main goal again. Meditate on what Jesus' resurrection means according to Revelation so that we live with God's hope. So Jesus is the faithful witness. Secondly, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is king. He's the king of kings. Or if you like from Revelation 1.5, go back to Revelation 1.5, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The resurrected Jesus is the king. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Ruler and conqueror. Going back to Psalm 89, remember Psalm 89 is about the Davidic king. I will also make him my firstborn, great, the greatest of the kings of the earth. That's what he said in Psalm 89, 27. In Psalm 89, 27, the, the psalm is, ta is talking about how, how God will bless David's anointed one, David's Messiah, David's descendant, as the king who will reign over all his enemies. 
If you take Psalm 89 with Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is about the anointed one, right? The Messiah, who's going to rule over all the kings of the earth, all people who rebel against him. Psalm 89 is connected to Psalm 2, and Psalm 89 is saying that the Davidic king is going to be the one to do that. And so they're looking for the future Messiah in Psalm 89, who's going to restore the Davidic house. Well, when John takes Psalm 89, 27, and he's, he's writing it here in Revelation 1, 5, according to Greg Beale, John views Jesus as the ideal Davidic king on an escalated eschatological level. What that means is that Jesus is the greater David and he's the end time David. So when he says escalated, he's greater than, than David. And when we say eschatological, we're talking about he's the last David. He's the end time David. He's the David who fulfills all of God's promises. I'll continue um, Greg Beale's quote. John views Jesus as the ideal Davidic king on an escalated eschatological level whose death and resurrection have resulted in his eternal kingship and in the kingship of his beloved children. Because we are going to be a royal, uh, uh, it says in Revelation 1, 6, um, he made us a kingdom. He made us kings and priests because he's the king of kings. And notice, go back to Revelation 1, 5. He's the ruler of who? Look at Revelation 1, 5. Who is he the ruler of? Say it out loud, kids. No, read verse five. Look at verse five. He's the ruler of who? The kings of? The kings of the earth. Now, when you see the kings of the earth in Revelation, it's speaking almost always, or maybe always, about the, the rebellious kings, the kings who hate God. Jesus is the ruler of those kings. So if you read through, just Google the kings of the earth in the CSB and, and look at it in Revelation. Several times it's there. It's referring to those who reject God and reject Jesus. But Jesus is still the ruler over them. And if Jesus rules over the kings of the earth, then he rules over, I would say, by logical extension, other Bible verses, Jesus rules over those who are behind the kings of the earth. Who's behind the evil kings of the earth? The evil presidents and, um, and governors of the earth. Who's behind all of those who reject Jesus? Who's leading them? The devil, right? demons. So Jesus is not only the ruler over the kings of the earth, even while they still rebel, Christ is even the ruler over the evil, uh, the dragon in Revelation 12 and the beasts, the first and second beast in Revelation 13. Jesus rules over all of them. He rules over all of them. He's the king of kings and lord of lords as Revelation 19 says. Now, how does Jesus rule over them? How did Jesus conquer them? Look at Revelation 5, 1 through 7. And I'm not going to have you read all of it. I'm going to tell you the story here. Revelation 4 and 5 is a dramatic, wonderful story. And you have to read Revelation 4 and 5 together because it's one scene. The whole thing is one scene. Revelation 4 is set up. Revelation 5 is the action. And it really is only one action and then reaction. So Revelation 4, I'll just summarize it very briefly here. Revelation 4 is the greatness of the one who sits on the throne. Nobody comes close to him. God is on a throne exalted and everyone is far away. You are so far from the king who sits on the throne. This king is the most powerful in the universe. And then Revelation 5, going to Revelation 5, verses 1 through 4, um, there's a challenge that an angel screams. He screams out to the whole universe. Is anyone worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of the one who sits on the throne? Can anyone even step to this one who sits on the throne? And there's no one. It's just silence in the whole universe. No one can take the scroll. And John begins to cry. He starts weeping as he sees this vision. And the angel tells him, stop crying. Don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. It says in Revelation 5.4, or 5-5, uh, five, five. don't weep, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Because if no one opens the scroll, God's redemptive plan for the universe doesn't happen. Someone has to have the authority and power to open the scroll and to enact the plan. Well, the one who is the root of David conquered. How did he conquer? Verse six, verse six. Then I saw one like a slaughtered what? like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and of the living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. So here he is. How did he conquer? He is not only the lion, he's the slaughtered 
lamb. He died on the cross for sins, but he's not dead anymore. Here he is standing there. And what does he do in verse seven? He went and took the scroll right out of the hand of the one who's seated on the throne. The only one in the universe who can take the scroll out of God is the slaughtered lamb who has conquered and is alive. Jesus conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death by being slaughtered and rising from the dead. In Revelation eleven seven, it says that the two witnesses would be conquered by the, the beast and killed. In Revelation 13, 7, it says that the saints are permitted to be conquered by the beast who comes out of the sea. And so Christians, as you live for Jesus, could it, is it possible that you can be killed on, on your pathway of serving Jesus? Yes. Actually, it's almost inevitable. Not necessarily by persecution, but as you, all Christians should be dying serving Jesus till their very last breath, right? So you will die. It could be by plague from a beast, from the beast. It could be by persecution. It can be by the COVID-19 pandemic. People will die serving Jesus and the beast is permitted to conquer them. And yet what's the application for us? Look at Revelation 13, seven. Revelation 13, seven says, it says that the beast is permitted to wage war and conquer the saints. But look at verse eight. All those who live on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. We thought about that on Good Friday for those of you who watched the video with us. But look at verse nine and 10. Here's the application. If anyone has ears to hear, what's the application? Let him listen. What should you listen to? Look at verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. So what's the call? This calls for what? Endurance and faithfulness from the saints. This is the call. If Christ Jesus is in fact the King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler who conquered, then you are called to endure. You're called to endure all the way to the end, to be faithful all the way to the end. So how do we conquer? Revelation 3.21 tells us, um, Revelation 3.21 says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sit down with my father on his throne. Christ conquers, he sits with the father. We conquer and we sit with who? Christ on his throne. Now, how do we conquer? Revelation 12.11, we already read it. It says, they conquered him. The saints conquered the dragon by the word of God, really more accurately, on account of the word of God and on account of their testimony. Because of the word of God, because of their testimony, why or how? By the fact that they did not love their lives to the point of death. They didn't love their lives to the point of death. How do Christians conquer? They're not scared to die. They will be faithful they will hold to the blood of the lamb. They'll lean on Christ's death and they will proclaim Christ's death. They will believe and proclaim the word of their testimony. And even if it means they have to die, they will die for Jesus. They will endure to the end. So that's the call for us to be faithful and endure, holding to the testimony of Jesus. Paul endured and finished the race. In our own church family, our brother Ronnie, St. Ronnie endured to the end and he finished the race, dying dying of medical issues, another sister in Christ, our sister Deborah finished the race, endured to the end, holding to the testimony of Jesus. That's what saints do. That's what we do. We live, we're dying, we die, enduring faithfully to the end, holding to the testimony of Jesus. And so we sing like Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. If you're not a Christian, what are you willing to die for? What are you willing to die for? Your answer to that question, and there's a lot of good things to die for, maybe your family, a good cause. But your answer to the question of what you're willing to die for will help you answer a deeper question. What or who are you really living for? What is your life about? Who are you really living for? What are you really living for? 
Jesus conquered death and Satan and sin by dying and rising for his people. That's good news. So Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is the faithful witness. The resurrected Jesus is the king of kings. And thirdly, the resurrected Jesus is, going back to 1.5, Revelation 1.5, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Go back to Revelation 1.5. That's what it says there. The firstborn from the dead. Now this is explicitly mentioning the resurrection. He was dead and now he has come from the dead. Not only has he come from the dead in resurrection, you will come from the dead in resurrection too if you're a Christian. I will come from the dead in resurrection just like St. Ronnie and St. Deborah will come from the dead in the resurrection. But we're not like Jesus. Jesus we're, we're gonna come from the dead, but Jesus is not just the one who came from the dead. What does it say? What's his title? He's the what? Firstborn from the dead. We won't be firstborn. Jesus will be the firstborn. He is the firstborn from the dead. He has already risen physically from the dead. When it says he's the firstborn from the dead, that means that he is the uh, primogenitor. The primogenitor. What is that? That's the state of being the firstborn child. And if you're the firstborn child, that means, especially in ancient cultures, that they had the right of succession belonging, so they have the right of succession belong, that only belongs to the firstborn child, especially the federal rule by which the whole real estate of, a, of an um, interstate passed to the eldest son. So they're the ones who get the inheritance, the firstborn son, the eldest son. Jesus is the firstborn. Now, He's the first one to, he's the first in the sense that of the new creation, the resurrected creation, the renewed creation, he is the firstborn in time. He's the first one to actually rise from the dead. He's the first one to rise from the old creation to the new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, if you take Revelation 3.14, it also calls Jesus, it says here in Revelation 3.14, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness the originator of God's creation. Now, the originator there might mean the ruler of God's creation, like Christ rules over the creation, but I think this is actually referring not to the old creation, but to the new creation. Why do I say that? It says he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. When it calls him the amen, you know where he, where else um, someone, because amen is a word you say at the end of a prayer. Rarely do you call someone the amen, but you know where else someone is called the Amen. In Isaiah 65, in Isaiah 65, verses 15 and 16, turn there for you. You could turn there if you're faster than me. Isaiah 65, uh, it says, you will leave your name behind, a curse for my chosen ones. The Lord God will kill you, but he will give his servants another name. He'll give them another name. Whoever asks for the blessing in the land will ask for a blessing by the God of truth. Now it says of truth there, but it's the God of Amen. And whoever swears in the land will swear by the God of Amen. For the former things will be forgotten and hidden from my sight. So God is the God of truth or the God of Amen. And Jesus says, I'm the Amen. I'm the Amen, the, the originator of God's creation. I'm the Amen, the beginning of God's creation. Now, this doesn't mean God is that Jesus is created. Because it says here the Amen in Isaiah 65, 16. But the very next verse, 17, says what? For I will create a what? A new heaven and a new earth. For the past events will not remember or come to mind. So here you have the amen. And what is he going to do? Create a new heaven and new earth. So the amen is tied to the new creation. So when Jesus says in Revelation 3.14, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. He's not talking about that he was the first created being. He's not, as we'll talk about later, he is God. He's not created begotten not made but that's not the point here the point here i think from the text is that jesus is the beginning of the new creation he's the beginning of the new creation as the firstborn from the dead and as the beginning of the new creation he's also the ruler of the new creation even the new earth so jesus has because he's the beginning of the new creation and the ruler of the new creation jesus will enact and he actually in fact inaugurated the new creation he already began it so, um, so um, uh, what's his name? Greg Beal talks about how Jesus is the inaugurator of the new creation. 
the inaugurator or the founder. He's the one who begins it. He's the founding father. He's the one who starts the new creation. And so he rules over it. And so Colossians 1.18 says that he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Notice he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood, through his blood shed on the cross. Through Christ's death and resurrection, Christ in Christ, in his death and resurrection, he has united all things or he has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. All of creation is reconciled to the renewal in Christ by his cross. Ephesians 1.10 gets a little bit more specific here, not just the cross, but Christ himself. As a plan for the right time, here's the plan, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Two times, in Christ, in him. The new creation will be brought together in who? In Jesus. And when I say in Jesus, what I'm saying is even in him, spatially, Christ, the son of God, God the Son, in Him, in who He is, we live and move and have our being in Him. And in Christ, the new creation will exist. He's the firstborn of the new creation. And anything that is renewed, anything that is reconciled, anything that has, is glorified and resurrected will only be because it is united and in Jesus. So He is the beginning of the new creation. That's why it says, so He's not only the, of the new earth, but even you. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. If you're in Christ, you're new creation. If you're united to him, if you are in him, the beginning of creation, the beginning of the new creation, the firstborn from the dead, if you're in this firstborn from the dead, you are a new creation. It's like anything that, you know, like that Midas touch, that anything he touches is gold. Anything that touches Jesus, anything that unites to Jesus becomes new. New creation, new life, no death, no sin, no curse, just by uniting to the resurrected firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ. New life has come. So what's the application for us? Revelation 2, verses 8 through 10. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 10. Look at 2, 8. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was what? dead and came to life so here's the resurrected one here's what he's saying as the resurrected one to the church even to us today i know your affliction and poverty but you are rich i know the slander of those who say they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan they're mocking you other religious people other churches are mocking you don't be afraid here's the command don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer look the devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you'll experience affliction for 10 days be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here it is. Be faithful to the point of death. That's the, that's the application. Be faithful to the point of death. And it even says in verse 10, what's the other command? The very first command of verse 10 of chapter 2. Don't be what? Don't be? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of persecution. Henry Martin in 1812, if you've read the book by John Piper that just came out, uh, The Coronavirus in Christ. He tells the story of Henry Martin in 1812, who in January was writing in his journal and he said, this is the deadliest, this could be the deadliest year because there's a plague, just like the coronavirus. There's a plague sweeping across the land. And he says, he's a, he was a missionary to India and um, Persia, I think. A missionary to India and Persia. And he wrote in his journal, like he, he, said, he said something along the, the, to the effect of, I want to translate the Bible into the new, I want to translate the New Testament, the Psalms. If I do that after that, it doesn't matter as much if I die. I just need to finish that first. But then he says this at the end. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. This is where we get the phrase, we're immortal until we die. Until it's time for us to die or to use Ephesians 2.10 language, that every good work has been predestined for you. Prepared, God has prepared you for every good work. When I'm done with all of my good works, I'm gone. I'm done. I'm dead. But until then, I cannot die. I cannot die until I'm done with my work. So whether it's persecution or plague, I can't die until I'm done with my work. And when I'm done, I'm done. 
So Samaritan's Purse, you guys have heard of Samaritan's Purse. It's this ministry. They're sending medical, Christian medical volunteers to the most needy places now in New York for um, helping with the COVID-19 pandemic. Even some of our church members have family members who are touched by this idea of, of some family members going to volunteer. They're going to risk their lives in the name of Jesus to do medical help in the name of Jesus, hopefully to gospelize, but they're going to do medical help in the name of Jesus, risking their own infection and their own life. Because if he has work for me to do, I cannot die. And then when I'm done, I'm done. So be faithful to the point of death. Do not be afraid. One of my great fears right now is being afraid that I'm going to die before I can help my kids get older. I want to walk my daughters down the aisle if they get married. I want to see them off and make sure that they're established and that my wife is able to have good godly leadership throughout her life. I, I want that. I'm scared that it might not happen. But what is God telling me here? Don't be afraid. Be faithful to the point of death. And when you're done, you're done. I'll take care of your family. I'll take care of your work. So this uh, Henry Martin wanted to finish translating the Bible. What, what if God took him earlier? That would be a tragedy, it would seem, but it's not because you're finishing your work. There's certain goals I want to do with my ministry here as a pastor here at Bethany Baptist Church. I want to preach through the whole Bible, the whole Bible, all verses in the Bible. I want to preach through the whole thing. And yet, God doesn't promise that. Don't be afraid to die. Be faithful to the point of death. Don't be afraid of persecution. Don't be afraid of plague. Don't be afraid of a COVID-19 infection. When you're done, you're done. Don't be afraid of death. Why? Because Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 11. Here's why you shouldn't be afraid. Look at verse 11. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by what? The second death. We will never be harmed by the second death. What's the second death according to Revelation 20 and 21? Burning forever in the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the second death. Getting crushed under God's infinite wrath for all eternity. That is the second death. And you will never be harmed by the second death. So don't be scared to die. Why will you never be harmed by the second death? Because Jesus was harmed by the second death. Jesus Christ hung on a cross and bore the wrath of God. That is the second death. Jesus takes the second death on the cross, even in his first, he takes the second death before he takes the first death, actually. He takes the second death, hanging in darkness, and he hangs there and says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? As he becomes a propitiation and the wrath of God is poured out on him. He takes the second death and he dies. And he says, it is finished. And he pays the full second death in those three hours on the cross. And then he dies the first death only to rise from the dead so that everyone who's united to Jesus Christ will experience the first death. Most of us until, unless you come by the, at the time of the second coming, you will experience the first death, but you will never experience the second death. So don't be scared to die because you won't die. The second death. Actually in Re Revelation 2.10, what will happen when you die? Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you, Jesus says, I will give you the what? The crown of life. This is what we learned from Friday, the Friday's message with John Piper, that Christ will personally give you the crown of life. If I die right now from some infection or die risking my life for Jesus or die in faithfulness to Jesus, and I'm on my deathbed and I'm scared that I'm about to cross the line, to cross the river, so to speak, to the other side, that who's going to be there waiting for me? Jesus. And what is he going to give me? The crown of life, eternal life. He's going to personally meet us there. Don't be scared to die because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the resurrected one. So the resurrected Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the king of kings. He's the firstborn from the dead. And last, the, resur the resurrected Jesus is the priest. And we're only going to do this very briefly, but look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He walks among the lampstands. I did my devotions in Exodus 26 today where uh, there's the seven lampstands that actually are one lampstand with seven, seven, um, I guess, yeah, seven, seven lamps or candles that are going to be on the one lampstand, but there's seven. And that's where the priest is going to be doing his work. Here, Jesus walks among the seven lampstands. 
And what is he dressed in? A robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. That's, that speaks of, of not only royalty, but priestly, priestly garments. So Jesus is the priest. And the priest is holy. And Jesus is holy here. And what does the priest do? Not only is he holy and dress holy, he makes a what? What does he make for his people? Over and over again. Sacrifices. At least old covenant priests did it over and over again. And Jesus, the great high priest, does make a sacrifice. But he makes a single final sacrifice. That's what we read in Revelation 5, 6, and 7. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb, slain lamb, a slaughtered lamb who was sacrificed, standing in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and among the elders. In Revelation 1, 5, it says, to him who loves us and has set us free by his blood, by Christ's death, by his blood shed, he has set us free. In Revelation 5, 9 and 10, look at Revelation 5. Stay in Revelation 5, 9 and 10 here. We'll, we'll, finish up, well, we'll, we'll finish up here in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, or Revelation 5, 9 and following. Whenever, or verse, verse 9 says, sorry, I was in the wrong chapter. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. And what did you do with this slaughter, with this sacrifice? And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. So we shouldn't be afraid of Jesus. It says in, that John was afraid of Jesus in Revelation 1, verses 7 18. He fell at his feet like a dead man. He was scared of Jesus. But then Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? Because Jesus loves us. He, he died for our sins. So we shouldn't be afraid of Jesus. He's the first and the last, it says in Revelation 1, 17, and the living one. So we don't need to fear because Jesus is for us, not against us. He puts his right hand, his right hand on the shoulder of, of John. So we don't need to fear Jesus because he made a sacrifice for our sins. Why should we not fear the second death? Because Christ is the one who took the second death for us, like I said earlier. Why should we not fear the first death in persecution or in pandemic or in plague or in risks of gospel love? Why should we not fear the first death? Because Jesus will give us the crown of life. He'll give us eternal life. And so dying is gain. It's better to die than to live. That's true whether you're four or 40 or 48 or 68 or 79. doesn't matter what age you are. If you're in Christ, it is better for you to die than to live because you will be with Christ. Die, live it, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. We're only still here because we have work to do. That's what Paul said in Philippians 1. I still have work to do. It's better for me to stay here for you. So I'm going to be here. But as soon as I'm done, I'm gone, and I want to be gone. And so what's the response? Here's the application. Revelation 5. What do they do? Revelation 5, 12. They, say, they said with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power. Be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Worship Jesus, the slaughtered and resurrected lamb. The slaughtered lamb who is a resurrected lion. Worship Jesus, praise him, ascribe to him power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and worth. Worship Jesus. Now, I said worship Jesus. In Revelation 19.10, we read that earlier. The angel said, don't worship me. I'm just like one of the brothers and sisters. I'm just a servant. You don't worship anyone but God, it says in Revelation 19.10. Why are we going to worship Jesus? the lamb. Well, he is God. That's why. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, he's the first and the last. And if you look at Revelation 22, 13, the first and last is the Alpha and the Omega. And according to Revelation 1, 8, the Alpha and the Omega is God, the one who was and is and is to come. Jesus is the eternal one. He is God. Because he's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Another reason why Jesus is God, that we know he's God from Revelation, in Revelation 1, 4 through 5, you have that Trinitarian formula. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That's the Father. From the seven spirits before the throne. That's the Spirit. And from Jesus Christ. So grace and peace can only come from God. The Father, 
who was in his, in his to come, the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. The great high priest, the resurrected one, the, the slaughtered lamb is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is God the Son. Not just the Son of God, but God the Son. And so we worship him as God. We worship him. That is the call to worship Jesus. So we sang, then on the third, at break of dawn, the son of heaven rose again. O trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. O praise the name of the Lord our God. O praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing his praise. O Lord, O Lord our God. He is our God. So let us meditate on what Jesus' resurrection means according to Revelation so that you live with God's hope. Jesus, the resurrected one, is the faithful witness. He's the king of kings. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the great high priest. He is God, very God. So the call to action is to worship Jesus, the risen lamb, who is God the Son. I say this in an awkward moment of the pandemic, but I say this anyways. Set aside every Lord's Day, every Sunday to worship Jesus and celebrate his resurrection. Easter is not special in some sense to us as, at BBC, right? Every Sunday, what do we say? Happy what? Happy Lord's Day. And what do we say? What is Lord's Day? Why do we, say, why do we call it the Lord's Day? Because it's the day that Christ what? rose from the dead. So we celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday. That's why we gather. That's why you're here live streaming right now rather than watching this video tomorrow. Because this is the Lord's Day. So the application, brothers and sisters, set aside every Lord's Day, the first day of the week, to celebrate the firstborn from the dead, the first of the new creation, and the fact that we are going to live in a new creation to come. If you're not a member of a church, join a church so that you can gather with your church on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of the of the dead and the resurrection of Christ from the dead and commune with your church family every Lord's day. And because we're in the pandemic, let me make a special application because most of you, all of you are watching this on live stream, except my family. Call someone today, Bethany Baptist church members, call someone today or video chat with someone today and tell them this, Christ has risen from the dead and we have hope. Say that, call someone up, Call some of the members, call some of the new members. We have 12 new members by God's grace who have come in. Call some of the new members, new members, call some other members, email members individually and say, hey, I love you. God loves you. I'm grateful for our family, church family. And I just want to tell you, Christ has risen from the dead. And so we have his hope. If we encourage each other with resurrection hope every Lord's Day as a rhythm of our lives, the resurrection will not be forgotten and it will not be dysfunctional in your life. Instead, if you do this, the resurrection will shape your life, it will fill your hope and your affections, and it will fix your eyes on Christ. Jesus has risen, amen? We have the truth, we have the victory, we have hope, we have peace, we have joy, we celebrate, the resurrected Jesus. Let's pray. I'm going to give you a minute of silent prayer, and then we'll pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. May all glory and honor and power and riches and thanksgiving be to you, the resurrected 
lion, the slaughtered lamb. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being the firstborn from the dead, for being the ruler of the kings of the earth, for being the faithful witness with the faithful testimony. We praise you for being the great high priest. We praise you for being God, very God. We praise you for you have enacted salvation as you have taken the scroll. You alone are worthy to take the scroll and we worship you. We worship you, Heavenly Father. We worship you, Holy Spirit. We praise you for who you are. We pray that grace and peace would continue to flow to us. We thank you that we have truth because he's the faithful witness, that we have victory because he's the conquering king, that we have hope because he's the firstborn from the dead, that we have peace because he's the priest, and that we have joy because he is God, our treasure. Lord Jesus, be honored in our lives. Draw us together. Shape our church family. Help us to connect and instill hope in one another and encouragement in this time of social distancing. Bless any non-Christian friends who have been watching. Save them. And bless other churches as well. Encourage them, Lord, and strengthen their churches through this word. Take any error and banish it from our thoughts and keep whatever's true to grow us for Christ's glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.